Hello, my name is Christopher Domicio. This is chapter 14 of A Very Good Novel, Coronavirus, by me. Chapter 14 is entitled, The Greatest Salesman the World Has Ever Known. Find the whole novel and previous episodes of this podcast uh, at averygoodnovel.com. Chapter 14, The Greatest Salesman the World Has Known. Bob was having the time of his life. For years, he'd convinced himself that he was an introvert, but now, with a lockdown going on amidst a full-scale pandemic, he was making more friends than he'd ever thought possible in the real world. Of course, almost all of his new friendships were online, but such was the power of the internet that he was face-to-face with them, had long conversations with many of them, and even stepped away to do some actual work once in a while. That, and he was quite happy now when the mail carriers showed up. One issue was that there were a lot of questions that kept coming up about Bob's past. People wanted to know about this person they felt compelled to follow. Using his newfound charisma, Bob usually deflected the requests with, that's not important right now. We need to focus on whatever the next thing or task at hand was. What's your last name, Bob? Where'd you grow up, Bob? What kind of work did you do, Bob? The questions kept coming, and he knew that at some point he was going to have to give answers. But the truth was, he was pretty happy not thinking about those things. He'd built a good life around not thinking of those things. Those things were too painful to think about. He knew, however, that he was going to have to come to terms with them. He was going to have to start talking about them, and that meant that he needed to think about them. Bob grew up on the south side of Chicago. There was nothing ordinary about his childhood, although at first glance it may sound typical. Growing up, he was surrounded by family, lots and lots of family. His father had a soft spot for Bob and wanted to bring him into the family business. So Bob spent a lot of time going on runs with his dad, helping with the garage, and when he entered his teens, assisting his dad with odd jobs, and eventually earning enough trust that he was sent out on his own. And that was when things blew up, literally. Bob's dad was William E. Dauber called Billy by most of his friends and family. Billy was one of the most notorious Chicago mobsters of the post-World War II era. Billy was known and respected far and wide for two things, running one of the most profitable chop shop rings in the history of organized crime, and also being one of the most prolific hitmen to ever pick up a gun. Bob stole cars starting at age 11, and when he turned 14, his father took him along on a hit. It was Bob who pulled the trigger that day. Over the next three years, Bob lost count of the number of people that he killed. He never liked it. But he wanted to please his father, and like any teenager who looked up to his dad, he would do anything for his father's approval. It was September of 1986 when everything went wrong. Bob had become friends with a low-level hitman and loan collector named John Ficarota. Ficarota was a known union leader, but he had to earn his stripes, and as such, Bob and he were often sent out together to take care of problems with bookies, gamblers, pimps, or start upstart underbosses. Their job was easy, collect the money or kill the target and get rid of the bodies. The problem was that a couple of Ficarota's past jobs had been found buried in shallow cornfield graves. The evidence found with them raised a whole series of issues that threatened wide swaths of the Chicago family. Bob and Ficarota were assigned a routine juice squeeze from a small-time bookie. Moments before this particular trip, Bob's father pulled him aside and dropped this bombshell. Ficarota is the target. Don't mess this up, Bobby. It was the only time Bob had ever been called anything but Bob. It felt like a rite of passage. It was this moment, his coming of age. As they pulled up to the bookie's shop, Bob pulled out his thirty-eight, put a shot in Figueroa's head. Figueroa was driving, his window was down, which should have made for an easy no-mess hit. But Bob would dump the body on the street and the bookie would get the blame. But something went wrong. 
Ficarota didn't die. He didn't even go unconscious. The bullet had somehow gone straight through his head without doing life-ending damage. Realizing now that he was hit, Ficarota got out of the car and began to run. Bob chased after him, getting off two more shots. Even back then, Bob wasn't known for his felt body or athletic abilities. Ficarota easily outran him, despite having one bullet in the head and two in the body. Somehow he managed to lose Bob, and in the meantime... Bob had been seen in broad daylight chasing and shooting a known Union underboss. Ficarota might die of his wounds, but Bob was a dead man. A series of car bombs in the following weeks were the heralds of a full gang war, one that he had started. Bob had been running from that day for 33 years. As soon as he realized that Ficarota had gotten away from him, Bob ditched his gun and caught a taxi to Union Station. There was no going back. Bob knew that nothing could save him from death after screwing up this job, nothing but disappearing. He bought a train ticket to Denver and never looked back. In Denver, he changed everything about himself. He grew out his beard, got rid of his tailored clothes, and started dressing in youth casual street clothes. Looking around Denver, he decided that there were two directions he could go. He could adopt the gutter punk street style, or he could fall in with the neo-hippie deadheads he saw walking their dogs, hanging out in cafes, and sleeping in overcrowded flop houses. The hippie ethos fit more with his sloppy manner, which had largely been held in check by his upbringing, and that's when he became the Bob that we know. Surrounding himself with hippies, he was almost immediately drawn into their consciousness pool and truly became a different person than who he had been while surrounded by mobsters. The overriding rules he kept were not using his last name, not filling out paperwork, and staying away from any kind of union, including the Postal Union. Bob began to go to local shows, started smoking dope, and developed a variety of small-time methods for generating enough money to live on. New deadhead friends encouraged him to join them on a pilgrimage to Oakland, California to see a series of dead shows in December of 1986. Once there, he was hooked. Living amongst the dead was the perfect way to disappear, since there was almost no overlap between deadheads and the Chicago mob. Bob peddled LSD and magic mushrooms, sold weed, made grilled cheese sandwiches, and scalped tickets to earn. He was smart enough to realize he could arbitrage multiple items between cities and make more than enough to live on. He didn't have a bank account, a telephone, a mailing address, or a driver's license. As the years passed, he followed the dead nearly everywhere they went, but not to Chicago. Never to Chicago. That was the reason why he missed their last two shows. Frontman Jerry Garcia died after performing Chicago's Soldier Field in July of 1995. Bob had spent nearly a decade of his life being a deadhead, and with the death of Jerry, he was at a loss as to what to do with his life. There were new bands and new groupies, but he was getting too old for the life he was living. He had a box filled with money, enough to retire on if he did it right. So that's what he decided to do. He'd enjoyed California far more than anywhere else, so he decided to hang his hat there and hope that nine years was enough that the heat from Chicago would have died down. During all of his time away, Bob had followed as the Chicago outfit was tried, sentenced, and murdered. Much of the subsequent violence was a result of his fuck-up with Ficarota, but he never saw mention of his name or family in any of the stories. Settling in San Francisco would have eaten through his box of cash in a couple of years, so instead he went inland to Sacramento. He liked the heat of the summer and the cold of the winter. It was Chicago, but without the humidity. He found a widow willing to rent to him for cash and moved into the apartment where he lived at the beginning of this tale. After 33 years of hiding, Bob was out in plain sight, but he hadn't given up all of his secrets yet. He agonized over whether to use his own name. It was something he desperately wanted to do, but it was too dangerous. People had already asked if he came from Chicago because of his accent. He'd tried desperately to get rid of that over the years, but when you're from the south side of Chicago... You can't ever really get rid of your accent. It will come through. During the 1990s, he'd been introduced to the Church of the Subgenius by some deadhead acquaintances. It was a spoof religion founded by the greatest salesman the world had ever seen who was cheated death several times. 
All the church's tenets were pushing the limits of silliness, but there was some deep truth in that that Bob liked. He had also been amused by the name of the fictional founder because it was so close to his own. He was Bob Dauber, and the founder of the Church of the Subgenius was J.R. Bob Dobbs. It was with amusement that he decided to adopt the name as his own. If people wanted to know who he was, what he had done, or where he was from, he would be pleased to tell them that he was Bob Dobbs, the greatest salesman the world had ever known, and he came from Peoria, Illinois. There were plenty of people who would get the joke, but the majority of the world would miss it, and he was going to play it straight. Okay, that's it for chapter 14. Tune in another time, or if you're lucky and you're hearing this later, chapter 15 is next. Aloha.